Today's sermon text is from Jonah, chapter 2. If you don't have a Bible, it'll appear behind me, and you can follow there. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight, yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped around my head at the roots of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought me up. You brought my life from the pit, O Lord, my God. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you and to your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. Good morning. So uh, thanks, Whitney, wherever you went, there you are. Thanks for your announcement regarding DC 127. I'd encourage you guys to go out there after service to learn more there. Thankful to you also that came last Saturday to uh, drop off bags for um, the Central Union Mission, the food drive that we do annually every year. These are just two ways in which we are trying to spread the love of Christ to those that are in need. Uh, There's a hundred other ways. And in fact, those of you that are covenant members, let me invite you to come back to the members meeting tonight where you're going to learn even more ways uh, that people in our church are spreading the good news of the gospel and serving their neighbors. Uh, But um, now I'm going to serve you by feeding you a meal. Hopefully it's a good one. Uh, We trust that insofar as I'm faithful to the word, it will be good for your soul. So let me pray for us as we dive in. Father, thank you for your word. God, thank you that it is clear to us insofar as it points us to your holiness, as it points us to our need, and as it provides us an answer in Christ. Lord, show us this morning that salvation belongs to you. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. So I wonder how you might describe the God of the Old Testament. Uh, the famed atheist Richard Dawkins describes the God of the Old Testament as, quote, arguably the most unpleasant character in all of fiction, a petty, unjust, unforgiving control freak, he calls him. And like Dawkins, some people don't like the God of the Old Testament, they would say. They sort of like the God of the New Testament, and so they sort of worship him, they would say, and not so much the God of the Old Testament. And I think what we find happening is here is there are some people that just are not privy to the God, quote unquote, of the Old Testament. And maybe that's some of you that are here this morning. Maybe that's some of you. And if it is, allow me to introduce you to the God of Jonah. The God of Jonah. Jonah, as Joey mentioned last week, is a book in the Bible that um, one of the minor prophets that gets a little bit more attention than the other minor prophets do, largely because of its fantastical tale of a man being swallowed by a fish and then coming out and speaking to the Ninevites. 
Now, Jonah is certainly a true story, but like all the books of the Bible, before it is about Jonah, the book of Jonah is about God. It's about God. And what kind of God do we find in the story of Jonah? Well, we meet a God who is compassionate to sinners and generous with salvation, though none of them deserved it. Hardly the picture of some unforgiving control feat. In fact, the God of Jonah fits quite nicely with the very same God that we read about in Christ. And so, friends, what we find oftentimes missing uh, in poor analysis of God in the Old Testament is a poorly understood uh, way to understand the context of what we read. And so that's what I want to do for us as we dive into Jonah chapter 2. Let me set the context for this book yet again because it's so important to understand the context of Scripture before we understand it. So I like to, when I teach what's called hermeneutics, interpreting the Bible, you guys have heard the first three rules of real estate. You all know what they are? Location, location, location. Well, Bible interpretation is really the same thing. We might say, though, context, 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 right? We've got to know the context. So here's the context. At the beginning of the Bible, we find that God made the world, and the capstone of God's creation is humanity who is created in his likeness, in his image. Mankind in Genesis 1.28 is commanded to be fruitful, to multiply, that is to fill the world with people that image God. And then right at the beginning, though, in chapter 3 of Genesis, we find Adam and Eve disobey God's word. They reject God's good commands in favor of their own ideas. Sin and death enter the world, but God, still passionate for his glory among the nations, chose a man by the name of Abram, and he renamed him Abraham, which means father of many nations. God then makes a covenant with Abraham wherein God promises that through the line, through the lineage of Abraham, God would have families, uh, have a family that would rise up and worship God, a people from every family. And so God, we find right there in Genesis 12 and eventually in Genesis 15, God still has not given up on his passion to see his glory among the nations. And so he continues to work through the seed of uh, Abraham as we follow it through into Genesis and Exodus Uh, God continues to work amongst the Israelites, though they are slow to believe his word. And the word, the word in the Old Testament, the Bible, is broken up into three parts. It's called the law, the prophets, and the writings. Some of you may be familiar with that word Tanakh, the Torah, the Netuvim, and the Ketuvim, the Tanakh. Those three parts of the Old Testament, law, prophets, writings. And the book of Jonah, then, fits inside of that second book of the trilogy. The prophets, as it were. So for those of you that are Star Wars fans, I'm sure there are a few here. If you're familiar with Star Wars fans, Jonah sort of is like the Empire Strikes Back. It's that second movie. Okay, so it's Star Wars has already happened. That's the Torah. It's what I just described to you. And Jonah is sort of that second book. It's in Empire Strikes Back. And so Jonah fits about an hour into that movie of Empire Strikes Back. That's sort of how it fits. A lot has happened inside the prophets before we get here. Uh, And so we have to understand then what comes before Jonah in order to understand Jonah and the Bible that it fits inside of. And so the best way even to do that in the more immediate context is to understand the book of Obadiah. So the book of Obadiah is the book that comes right before Jonah. So think of it sort of like this, though. It's like the last 10 minutes of the movie. Okay, to understand this part of the movie, we're jumping right in. And so what we find in the book of Obadiah is the point of Obadiah is about the day of the Lord. 
The day of the Lord is a promise from God to punish the nations that had been so bad to Israel. But remember, God had a passion, right? We've already seen this. He has a passion for his glory among the nations. And so the, so the book of Jonah answers God's passion to have his glory still go among the nations. Obadiah is about how he will punish the nations. Jonah comes in and gives us uh, the hint that he is still going to have compassion on the nations for his glory. So in that way, Jonah sort of pictures uh, the Old Testament in miniature. So Jonah himself, while a historical figure, represents Israel, a man that is slow to believe God's word, but quick to want the good gifts of God, even and especially when things get tough. But last week we heard about God's call to Jonah to go to Nineveh to call them to repentance. But, no, uh, but Jonah does not want to go and preach to the Ninevites. And we find in chapter 4, verses 1 to 3, why he doesn't want to do that. Uh, and the, basically the short of it is, the reason why he doesn't want to obey God's word and preach repentance to the Ninevites is really basically he doesn't like them. That's really it. That's the short of it. You can read about that in 4, 1 to 3. He likes his own people, his own tribe. He doesn't like the Ninevites. He does not want God to be good to them. He just wants God to be good to him. And so Jonah flees the presence of the Lord in chapter 1. And like we see over and over again in the Old Testament, when you flee the presence of the Lord, nothing but good, bad things, bad things eventually happen. That would be a really bad slip right there. So he uh, then, Jonah is then in the boat. He understands as he's in this boat, fleeing the presence of God. A storm begins to happen. He understands it's his responsibility. There are some non-Jews that are sailors on that boat. Uh, he then, uh, Jonah then tells them to throw him into the sea and then the sea will quiet down. And as soon as they do that, that's exactly what happens. Jonah, sort of like Jesus, is thrown as a punishment into the sea and it brings calm just as Jesus is thrown upon the cross and gives us calm. So chapter one, though, ends with two things that happen that need to be noticed. One is that Gentiles, Gentiles, non-Jews, are sacrificing to the Lord and worshiping Him in spirit and in truth. That's a preview of coming attractions in the New Testament, the New Covenant. While the second thing, the Hebrew prophet Jonah is swallowed by a fish that the Lord appointed for Jonah. So we find here, chapter 1, things end with Gentiles worshiping God while a Hebrew prophet is deep in the belly of a fish. Now the point of chapter 2 is seen right there in verse 9. Take a look at it. That's our first and main point for the day. It's where we'll spend most of our time. So if you learn nothing from this chapter in our time together, remember these words. Salvation belongs to the Lord. That's the point of chapter 2. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Now take a look there in verse 1. Note that Jonah is praying from the belly of the fish. I'm sure that he recounted this prayer letter and had it written down, but if we were on that boat, let's say, we were those Gentiles and we saw Jonah go over the side of the ship and then things begin to calm and we noted a fish then swallows him up. Well, then we might be wondering, well, gosh, what's he doing now? What's it like down there? And we know he kind of tells us a little bit about the struggle. But eventually what we find him doing when he's swallowed up by a fish is he prays. He prays. So this is a prayer here in chapter two or yeah, chapter two. Uh, so. Um, Notice that even though Jonah, though, is disobedient, as he prays, I want you to notice that God still hears his prayer. The God of steadfast love still hears his prayer. This is amazing, isn't it? 
He's running from God. He's fled from God. And yet he prays in the midst of his distress. And God hears Jonah's cry. You can see that there in verse 2. Take a look. I called out to the Lord. And he answered me. Isn't that great? Out of the belly of Sheol. Sheol is like death. Out of the belly of Sheol, he said, I cried and you heard my voice. Verse 7. My prayer came to you in your holy temple. Guys, this is what your God is like. And it's amazing that in the midst of distress and disobedience, we pray and God still hears us. When we are disobedient, running from the Lord, difficulties rise as a result of our poor choices. We can still call to God and we can run from him and then pray to him. And we can be confident to know that he will still hear us. Isn't that good to know? Do you remember that time, friend? Do you remember that time when you upset somebody really bad and they didn't talk to you? Do you remember that? God's not like that. He's not like that. He hears us and he speaks to us. Even when we run from him and are left to sleep in the bed that we made, God is still happy to hear and answer from and hear from us and to then answer us. That's what we see secondly. See, Jonah cries out in distress. He describes the events there in verses three to six. You can see there waves and billows are blowing him around. The waters are closing in on him like dirt in a grave. Weeds are wrapped around his head. Uh, Jonah is as good as gone. He's as good as dead away from the presence of the Lord. But then verse six. You brought up my life from the pit, O Lord, my God. And so here, verse nine, salvation belongs to who belongs to the Lord. Right. This is amazing. So when all seemed lost and Jonah justifiably was about to lose his life, he calls out. And the very same God that he disobeyed not only hears Jonah's prayer, he answers Jonah's prayer by relieving him of the consequences of his guilt. This is what God is like. And this in particular is what the God of the Old Testament is like. Church family, this is what your God is like. When we are dead in our trespasses and sins, God is there. And he hears us. And not only does he hear us and answer us, we find even in this story, God chases Jonah down. He chases him down. Look at chapter one, verse seven, just before this. Note the language. The Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. He's chasing him down. Chapter two, verse three. You cast me into the deep. This is this is Jonah's, I think, proper theology. Chapter two, verse three. You cast me into the deep. Your waves and your billows passed over me. Chapter two, verse six. You brought me up out of the pit. In chapter two, verse 10. The Lord spoke to the fish and it vomited him out. God is chasing him down. In mercy, God is chasing him down at which time, because of all of this, Jonah recognizes this in his disobedience. God's chasing him down by his mercy. He delivers him at which time then Jonah then concludes again. Verse nine, salvation belongs to the Lord. It doesn't belong to him. He knows that there's nothing he can do. He's sitting in the belly of fish. There's nothing he could do. And he's done everything wrong. And yet God chases him down and delivers him. Salvation belongs to the Lord because God mercifully affected that salvation in Jonah's life. There's nothing he could do to to rescue himself. The Lord did it. And so God not only chased Jonah down, God not only met him, he met him when Jonah was farthest away from God's good intentions. He met him when he was furthest away from God's good intentions and he delivers him. He saves him. We could 
some of us that are familiar with the stories of the Bible, it sort of reminds us of the prodigal son in the pigsty, doesn't it? God meets us where we are. He meets us where we are. We can't outrun God because He never outruns us. He meets us where we are, even and especially when we are in dire circumstances that we are guilty for having created ourselves by our disobedience. God still meets us. He still hears us. He still answers us and he delivers us. Salvation belongs to him. And because it does, he can grant it to sinners like me and like you. This is what God is like. He is gracious. He is merciful. He is slow to anger and abounding abounding in steadfast love, chasing down sinners that try to run from Him. This is what God is like. He is a good God. And so, beloved, I wonder if you know that. I wonder if you remember that God is like this. Do you rehearse this God for yourself every day? Do you rehearse your own salvation, Christian, every day? This God. Do you remind yourself that this is what God is like? Or do you more often think of God sort of like a hard-to-please father that just constantly is saying to you, get it right or else? No, friend, if you rehearse for yourself that kind of God, that is the God that the evil one would have you to believe. That is not the God that the Bible would have you to believe. God hears the prayers of His people no matter how far you may have tried to run from Him. He hears, He meets us there, right where we are, and He answers us and He delivers us by His grace and for His glory, which is what He's after. See, friends, I'm sure that if we gave time this morning to all of us, those of us that are in Christ here this morning, all of us could testify to this fact, couldn't we? If we slowed down and think about all the ways that God rescued us from our own place, the times in which we were in our own sort of bellies of the fish, as it were, We could testify, each one. We could line each other up and just bring them right in front of this pulpit and talk briefly about how God delivered us in grace for His glory. We can testify to that. And so let me encourage you today, this afternoon, for those of you that are going to lunch with each other, or even if you're going alone, talk about this. This is what you should do at lunch today. Go and just rehearse how you had tried to flee the presence of God and how He in His infinite grace You could not outrun him and he came to you and he delivered you by his grace and for his glory. Take the time today to do that, whether that be the time you came to faith in Christ, whether that be the time in which you had a struggle, you were running from God and he showed you grace and delivered you. Take the time to recount this today. Talk about it with each other. Give praise to him and pray and give thanks to him. We so quickly forget these things that God is like this. So good to be thinking about these things. We could talk about time and again. Times in which we ran from God and it was sort of nice for a time. Sleeping in the boat. Leaves, breeze floating in our cheeks and in our hair. You know. And then God in His infinite kindness delivers us. When the storm started happening. Times in which those storms started coming and we got scared. And we no longer wanted to be in Tarshish. And He delivers us. Remember that this is what your God is like. This is the God of the Old Testament, the God of the New Testament. This is the God of the world. This is the God of Jesus Christ. We count these things time and again. God not only, though, hears us. He not only answers us. He not only delivers us. But guess what else He does? He keeps us. Right now, in this moment, Christian, He is holding on to you. Even if you've tried to get away from Him, 
Think about this with my kids. And they try to run away when they know that they're in trouble. And I take a hold of them, not in the way that I shouldn't, but I just make sure and not let them flee my presence. And I hold on to them because I love them. God's like that. He's even holding on to you in this moment. So, friends, you should understand, church, you should understand that the most important thing that I can do for you, my church family, the most important thing I can do for you every week when I come up here and preach the Bible is to remind you of these basic facts of the gospel. It's the most important thing I can do for you. You might think, you know, I'm coming here every week so that Nathan can give me some sort of cool nugget, you know, some interesting fact, you know, to take every week. Like that might happen, but that's not the most important thing I can do for you. The most important thing I can do for you is to remind you of the God of the gospel. There's a great story of Martin Luther when somebody comes up to him and asks him, Luther, why do you keep preaching us to the gospel every single week? And Luther said back to him, because you forget it every single week. And that's why we have to hear this. The evil one would have us to forget this gospel and the God of this gospel. And we who are in Christ need to know. God is like this. We have disobeyed His Word. We have fled His presence. And God met us in the darkness. He gave us light. And He gave us light. And not only gives us light, He holds on to us. This is what your God is like, beloved. This is what salvation is like. Rehearse the God of grace. Rehearse the Gospel for yourself. And believe that this God and this Gospel is the only thing that will give you lasting peace and joy in the world. Don't forget that. Come to Him and enjoy Him. But I realize that some of you may still be in the belly of the fish, as it were. Some of you may still be fleeing the presence of the Lord. Some of you came here this morning and it took all the courage you had to show up to church. You're so overwhelmed by guilt or disobedience or shame or something like that. It took all the courage you have to show up today. And so therefore, in that sense, you're still in the belly of the fish, fleeing the presence of God. And you're scared and you find yourself at the end of yourself. Well, friend, you came to the right place. You came to the right place because the God of Jonah is the same God that is present with us here today. We sang about that today, didn't we? He's the same God that is here today with us right now. Same God here. He is revealed in the person of Jesus Christ. The Bible teaches that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. And Jesus calls himself a friend of of sinners. He said that he came not to call the healthy, but to call the sick, to call those that have run from him or are running from him in his presence. Now, some of you might say, well, Nathan, that sounds good, but you don't know what I've done. You don't know how much I really ought to feel guilty and shameful. You don't you don't know, Nathan, maybe what has been done to me. Well, friend, that's true. I don't. I don't know that, but I promise you, whatever it is, and wherever you are, God in his infinite grace can meet you. He met a disobedient prophet in the belly of a fish and he pulled him out. I am pretty sure that he can meet you in the auditorium of a public high school and speak to you and deliver you out of all of that shame and that guilt. He can meet you in murder or abuse. He can meet you in the darkness of drugs, alcohol, or porn addiction. He can meet you in greed or gossip. He can meet you in whatever failure you might find yourself in. There is no need to try and clean yourself up in order to meet him. Go to him and know that he is glad to meet you and heal you. That's exactly what we see Jonah doing. He's running from the presence of the Lord. And in that time, Jonah calls out to him and he answers him. 
delivers him. So friend, if you're that person that I'm speaking to, running from the presence of the Lord, struggling, living in that shame and guilt, you may be looking around and thinking about this church, these people that you're sitting next to this morning and thinking, well, I'm not sure if I fit in here. But you need to know something about that person you're sitting next to. They may appear to have it all together, but they don't. That person you're sitting next to, whoever they are, they may look nice on the outside. They may have nice clothes on today. They, they may have had a good meal. They may have some good degrees and a nice job. But you need to know whoever it is on the right of the left of you right now, inside, they're a mess. Guess who's also a mess? The guy you're looking at right now. I'm also a mess. You think I'm because I'm a pastor, like somehow I've got some sort of special favor from God and I live a perfect life? Of course not. Spend 10 minutes with me. You'll get really unimpressed really fast. All right. God is gracious and he saves people that need grace. We need grace. See, the difference between a Christian and a non-Christian is not the difference between the moral and the immoral. Christians are Christians only because of the grace and the mercy of a God that is full of steadfast love and mercy. That's the only reason. Take a look at verse 9 again. Salvation belongs to who? It belongs to the Lord. And the reason it belongs to the Lord is because He is the one that affects our salvation by grace through His mercy for His glory. Salvation does not belong to us because we've earned it by our good behavior. Quite the contrary. All that we have is by grace. Salvation is of or by or belongs to the Lord. Not us. It does belong to us in one sense, but only because God granted it to us. We do not trust ourselves to be pulled out of the pit. Jonah could not trust himself to be pulled out of the pit. He was sitting there. You can read about it there. The weeds are wrapped around his head, verse 5. God delivered him up. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And so like Jonah, we all came to the end of ourselves and we knew that the greater Jonah, Jesus the Christ, was and is the only way out of our darkness. He's our only hope. We trust the one that bore our sins on the cross, sat in the belly of a grave for three days and three nights. And on the third day, he rose again. For our sin and for his glory. We do not have, we Christians do not have a righteousness of our own that comes by our obedience to the law. No, no. Our righteousness is alien to us. It comes from without us. It comes to us in Christ. It was a gracious gift of God. And so we have nothing to boast in. Nothing. Nothing to boast in. Though we often do, we do not need to hide our struggles. We don't need to hide our brokenness. We can drag them all into the light of Christ Jesus and watch them die. And friend, you can too. You can drag in all those sin and shame and struggles into the light of the glory of Christ and watch them die as well. You don't need to hide it anymore. Precisely because as you've attempted to outrun God, as we see in the book of Jonah, you can't. And God in his infinite kindness oftentimes runs us down. How good is it that he's like this? Drag it into the light, friend. Give it to Jesus. Trust that his punishment was your sin's punishment. Then you can trust that his resurrection is your resurrection. It's your new life. Friend, you've been Trusting all the wrong things for far too long. So trust Christ. Enjoy Him. You can stop trusting the empty promises of sin, Satan, and society to give you life. And you can start trusting Jesus Christ to give you new life. 
He doesn't need you to be anything other than broken before him. Jonah recognizes that's what he's rehearsing in chapter two. He's recognizing his inability to save himself. And he called out to God and God delivered him up. So in the same way, the only thing that God needs from you to save you, to deliver you from all of that sin, shame and guilt, the only thing he needs is for you to be broken before him. And then he'll even take that. And guess what he'll do? He'll give you new life, forgiveness, healing, love. And so, friend, call out to him wherever you are in your darkness. Call out to him in your distress. Know that he will hear you. Know that he will answer you. Know that he will deliver you. Know that he will keep you by his love. Don't leave here today, friend, serving vain idols. Look down there in verse 8. Look what happens to those that trust in vain idols. Verse 8 says they forsake the hope of steadfast love. Friend, don't forsake the hope of steadfast love by trusting vain idols to deliver you, to keep you, to give you joy in life. No, come to Jesus. He will give you the grace that leads to forgiveness, that leads to life up out of that pit that you are in. Salvation belongs to him and he is ready and able to give it to you if only you would trust him with all of your brokenness and give it to him, trusting that he will give you new life. Now, before we leave this passage, I need to leave us with a warning from chapter two. We've seen that salvation belongs to the Lord, but you need to know, friend, that chapter two, you can ask uh, Joey and Catherine were talking about it this week. I'm having so much trouble preaching chapter one, chapter two, chapter three in separate sermons. It's hard because I think the point of Jonah is to be sort of said in one single sitting. Uh, I can remember when our brother Michael was reading Ecclesiastes and he would text me. He's like, man, what's going on with Ecclesiastes? And I just kept telling him, get to the end, just get to the end, get to the end. Jonah is sort of the same way. It's hard to sort of break it up in these separate, separate sermons because it's meant to be understood as a whole. And so here's the warning from chapter 2. We need to understand where this is going. Point 2, fickle faith fails. Salvation belongs to the Lord, as we've seen. But you need to know and be warned that fickle faith fails. Do you notice the absence of something in chapter 2? When we read through it, maybe when you were reading it this week in preparation, did you notice something was missing that was present in things around it? You'll notice, friend, that there's not any real clear sign of repentance in chapter 2. And we see what repentance looks like in the Gentile sailors just before this. They not only receive the benefit of a calm sea, they fear the Lord, it says there, they fear the Lord exceedingly. They offer a sacrifice to the Lord and they make vows. That's what the Gentiles do. In other words, in chapter 1, these Gentiles, they not only received something from God, but they gave something to God. A sacrifice to connote their repentance, I believe. And after chapter 2, in chapter 3, we see an even greater evidence of repentance among the Gentile Ninevites. When they fast, they put on sackcloth and the king sits in ashes after their their sin is called out. Chapter 3, verse 8, there's a call to turn away from the evil and the violence that they have committed. And when we compare these two examples of repentance with the prayer of Jonah, they look different a bit, don't they? Jonah is very thankful for his salvation from death. He rightly gives praise to God and recognizes that his salvation was from the Lord. But nowhere do we find any meaningful or discernible evidence that Jonah is taking responsibility for his disobedience. 
He says that he was driven away from the sight of God. That's verse 4 of chapter 2. But that isn't taking responsibility for his sin as much as it was just sort of saying things how they were. Jonah simply wanted to get saved. He didn't seem to want to really repent. He was glad the Lord met him and delivered him. But it doesn't appear as though he ever actually takes responsibility and turns from his disobedience like we see in the Gentiles and the rest of the story. In fact, when we see the fruit of his so-called vow in verse 9, uh, I understand that vow in verse 9 to be his, all right, I'll go do it. I'll go speak the salvation, which we'll read about next week. When we see the fruit of his so-called vow in verse 9, we see that the moment Jonah preaches a few words and the Ninevites repent, we see Jonah quickly reverts to his self-centered prejudices. As we will see, Jonah even gets ticked at God that a plant that God gave him gets taken away. He gets ticked about that. Some scholars even believe that when the fish vomits Jonah out, that word vomit is chosen very carefully by the author. So the author could have said all kinds of things. He walked out, he was coughed out, he was spit out. But it's possible, one way to read that, not saying that it necessarily is, but it could be that the word vomit connotes sickness. The Lord is sick of this sort of one-sided view of salvation where He just wants to get out of it but not actually repent and trust the Lord. So it could be that the Lord is sick of Jonah's kind of fickle faith. Or even if we understand Jonah to be a type of Israel, Israel's fickle faith. Jonah seems to have what we might call fair-weather faith. Or again, fickle faith. We, when things are good, when things happen in the way that he wants, He's happy to give all praise and glory to God. But when they don't go according to his plan, he's quick to gripe and complain. Remember the story of Jonah, friends, not only pictures the steadfast love and mercy of God and salvation, this story, I believe, is meant to picture the fickleness of Israel towards that same God. So you've got to understand 1 Peter chapter 1. If you want to know how I read the Old Testament, I read it out of 1 Peter 1. This story, the Old Testament, was written for us, it says. So Jonah's fickle faith is picturing Israel and their fickleness towards God's grace. And over and over again, when we read the Old Testament, over and over again, we read about how Israel is graciously delivered from an enemy, only to read about them quickly complaining or just disobeying the Lord and serving idols quickly thereafter. And then they will get in trouble again, right? I mean, those of you familiar with the Bible, you know how this goes. Then God delivers them and then they get out and they're so thankful and they give praise to God. And then they start serving vain idols yet again. God gets angry with them, things go bad, then they, what? They call out to God, God then delivers them, on and on and on and on it goes. And quickly they just start griping and complaining or serving idols quickly thereafter. So these Israelites seem to meaningfully fail to repent and not only receive the good gifts of God, they fail to actually love Him and trust Him. And this is exactly what Moses even said they would do and right before he died. He even creates a song. Those of you who are familiar with the story, you know, my kids can remember songs really well. That's why we're having them do songs. So Moses even remembers, has them to, he teaches them this song. And the point of the song is, you guys are going to mess it up. That's sort of the song. Just so you know, when it happens, God's not surprised by all this. And so Jonah, in that way, sort of pictures Israel and its uh, seeming inability to display the glory of God to the nations. Instead, they uh, just have a lack of repentance and an inward 
understanding. So this story here in Jonah is sort of the Old Testament in miniature. Obadiah, God will judge the nations. Jonah, he will still have compassion on the nations as he will invite them into the praise of his glory. God will have his glory displayed among the nations. And so he is giving Jonah and Israel yet another chance to be to learn about grace and the need to repent and believe and display his glory to the nations. And yet he is using this occasion. God is using the occasion of Jonah to show them the fickleness of their faith. And not only that, friends, does Jonah's fickle faith not remind us of our own fickle faith? Do we not find ourselves to be very similar to Jonah when the times of celebration come on and we give thanks to God? We even make vows to him, right? God, if you get me out of this, then I'll do this. And God does, and we get out, and we sort of half-heartedly obey him. And then bad things happen, and then we just start sort of getting grouchy again or serving vain idols again. See, Israel is so much like Jonah, and Jonah, friends, is so much like us. So we should be warned that fickle faith fails. So we can't get away from the question this book is driving us to in the end. Go ahead and flip over there. Take a look at those last two verses. The whole point of this book is to drive us into those last two verses. It ends with a question. Jonah, as he gets angry at the turn of events, the Lord asks Jonah twice in chapter 4, verse 4 and verse 9. Do you do well to be angry? And then he turns with the follow, following verses that conclude the book. Verse 10, you pity the plant. The word, by the way, there could be interpreted compassion. I think that would be a better interpretation, but nevertheless. You pity the plant. You have compassion on the plant for which you did not labor. Nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night. And should not I have pity or compassion on Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left hand? So for us, if we could sort of contextualize this for us, it might go something like this. You pity the loss of a job, the loss of a relationship, the loss of a skill, the loss of money, the loss of some personal preference. But do you pity the nations around you that are lost? Do you have compassion on those that don't know God? Have you so quickly forgotten the grace of God in your own salvation? See, friends, all too often we receive the Lord's grace and then grumble when the Lord doesn't have things turn out just the way that we want them to. And the Lord confronts our fickle faith by asking us this question. Do you do well to be angry? You have compassion on losing this or that. But what about the compassion for my glory amongst the nations? What about that? What about dying to self and living for Christ? What about all those many good things I've done for you? What about those that just don't know that? Don't know the story of my grace and kindness? Well, friends, we will have more time to consider those things the next couple of weeks. And so I don't want to leave you in any sort of guilt. I want to leave you considering again the grace of this God. That's one of these main themes of the book. Considering the grace of God in salvation. Flip back over there to chapter 2. And I want you to notice in that prayer and claim this prayer for yourself. Except make sure and be clear about repentance as you do. So just look at that. I'm just going to preach this to you as this, as this you Christian was your story. You ready? Take a look there at verse 2. 
and receive these good and amazing words of God's grace to you. When you, friend, were dead in your trespasses and sins, running from the good commands of God, you called out to the Lord and he answered you. He heard your voice. While he may have cast you into the deep and sent you into the perilous consequences of your sin, while you may have been driven away from his sight, yet, Christian, yet, you shall look upon his holy temple. The waters of sin and death, we might say, may have overtaken you. Your life may have been fainting away, but your prayer for salvation, Christian, was heard. It was heard. As Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights and rose up out of the fish, so Christ was in the tomb for three days and three nights and rose up from the grave for your salvation and for his glory. His new life, Christ's new life, is now your new life, Christian. Your new life. With thanksgiving, offer your life as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to the Lord. Say to the Lord today, salvation belongs to you. Say that. Say that every day, but say it especially today. And be thankful that it does. Be thankful that salvation belongs to him. Because if salvation belonged to us, we'd never know salvation because we are too much like Jonah. Fickle and prejudiced, running from the presence of the Lord. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us. Say that again. Isn't that good? But God, being rich in mercy, because of, because of what? Because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace we have been saved and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us who are in Christ Jesus. Restoration Church. Show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness by going to your neighbors and to the nations and tell them that God found me, gave me grace when I tried to run from him and delivered him. Me and gave me salvation because I trusted in the work of Christ, the greater Jonah. He delivered me up and I'm here to tell you that this is what God is like, that God is gracious, that salvation belongs to him. Trust him, give your life to him, follow him. And as you do, you can know as they do that and believe that the glory of God advances just as he's always wanted it to in this book. Just as we know that it will be completed in Revelation 5, 9 and 7, 9, when all tribes, tongues, nations, languages around the throne, giving praise to the glory of God in Christ Jesus. Spread this good news of God of grace, that he delivers those that run from his presence and shows them grace that they might live and find new life. Spread that good news. Enjoy it. Preach it to yourself and then spread it and tell them that salvation belongs to God. My guess is your neighbor thinks that salvation belongs to them. By that, I mean they probably think they got to do some stuff. Your job is to tell them that Christ has done it all. Salvation belongs to him. Repent of your sin that caused him to go. Trust in him. And know that his new life in the resurrection can be theirs. This is our goal, Restoration Church. Make disciples that what? Delight in the supremacy of Christ. In Washington, D.C. and beyond. All over the nations. God is speaking to us through Jonah. 
He's showing us that we should enjoy salvation. We should ascribe all glory to him. But we should repent and know that it is all of grace and that we must not only picture it with our lives, but we must speak of it with our words. That they would know and they would believe and God would have a people all over the earth for his glory. And may we not have that fickle kind of faith. But may we trust him because he's so good. As is evidenced in his son. Let's pray. Father, we do praise you that salvation belongs to you. Thank you for grace that met us in our time of need, just as it did with Jonah. Thank you that you delivered us when our lives were in the pit. Thank you that you chased us down as you did Jonah. Forgive us, God, for our fickle faith. and Remind us of the life that is found in the gospel. And make us willing, God, to spread the good news of God's grace in Christ Jesus, the greater Jonah, who's overcome sin and death in the resurrection. Make us more willing, more bold to speak this gospel to them. The gospel would advance to all four corners of the earth. And your son would return. And we would enjoy his glory forever and ever. God, I pray that you would grant us opportunities for the word. Just as Paul prayed, God, make opportunities for the word, and may that door swing open and may we speak the gospel clearly, emphasizing the grace of God in Christ Jesus and the hope that's found in him. Hope that's able to pull all of us up from the darkness, from the pit, and onto dry land. Holy is your name, and great are you, God. We love you, and thank you that you're a God that's like this one we read of in Jonah. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.